0: Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peak, and welcome to episode 362 of HER, the podcast where you're going to hear the naked truth about her mind, her body, her life, and today, her anxiety. Aha! Yeah, you know you're anxious. Women are anxious. That's what we do. It's kind of a second career. So... We have a wonderful show, a brand new book that's just come out about this topic. Before we begin, just know that this episode is made possible by our wonderful friends at Smarty Pants Women's Vitamins, the delicious once-a-day gummies that contain all of the essential vitamins, minerals, and omega oils customized just for women. To learn more, hop on over to smartypantsvitamins.com okay now now here's your first reminder to click on the itunes after this episode to rate and review the show because i love hearing from you love your feedback okay it's time for her her the podcast the naked truth about women
1: her mind her
0: body her life it's all about her raise your hands girlfriends out there if you've felt super anxious of late. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. I have I had a hunch. We're going to talk about anxiety and this whole issue of anxiety is extremely relevant to a woman's life especially. The name of the new book is The Anatomy of Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming the Body's Fear. It is written by Dr. Ellen Vora, who is a holistic psychiatrist. She likes to address mental health issues through diet and lifestyle. She's a board-certified psychiatrist, medical acupuncturist, and yoga teacher. Sign me up, Dr. Vora. I love this. Man, what a background. Dr. Vora, welcome to the her podcast.
1: Mm, Dr. Pam. Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
0: Oh my goodness. Why'd you write the book?
1: Why? What was so important that
0: made you want to do this?
1: yeah so i was listening to my patients and to the different populations of people that i speak to at speaking engagements and if you drop a litmus strip into the stew of modern life people are anxious that's where we're struggling and that's what i spend all day every day thinking about working with and i felt like i had some insights to offer to help
0: okay now anxiety just go ahead and define it. What is anxiety? I think women you know, sometimes sit back and say, well, am I just being anxious? Am I over the top? Am I okay? What's anxiety?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it actually has a really broad range of ways that it manifests. And it might feel to some people like a sense of dread. For some people, they might feel fine at baseline, but every once in a while, out of the blue, they have a panic attack. Other people are just holding muscular tension or digestive issues, and it's it's become more of a somatic or bodily issue. I always tend to think that some of mm, people in conventional medicine might say, it's being overdiagnosed, or we've diluted the term or the concept, and now it's almost trendy. Like, everybody is saying they're anxious. And there's pushback around that. Almost Almost like gatekeeping of the diagnosis. I actually feel the opposite of that. I think that I'm really here to champion everybody trusting their subjective experience. And if you feel like you're anxious and that's a word that you identify with, then in my book, you are meaningfully suffering and it's something that we should look at and try to improve.
0: All right. Now in the book, you talk about a couple kinds of anxiety. What is this false anxiety that you talk about?
1: Yeah, I, I use a really different classification system than what I was trained to, to use. We In psychiatry, we are trained to use the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, and basically to think about anxiety as generalized anxiety or OCD or panic disorder um, or PTSD even. I found that all that, that's intended to guide management and to make us think, okay, for this, we might use such and such medication, or for something else, we might use cognitive behavioral therapy. But in the way I approach mental health, which is more of a functional medicine perspective, I I didn't need that same, that wasn't what was steering my treatment in a meaningful or useful way. Instead, what I was recognizing was that people were coming in with two main kinds of anxiety. One was what I will call false anxiety. And it's basically avoidable anxiety. It's physical and body-based. And the solution to it has very little to do with seven years of therapy and so much more to do with understanding ways that our physical body gets out of balance and things that we can do to quickly address that, keep our blood sugar stable, heal our gut, maybe decrease our caffeine consumption, which I know I don't earn any friends when I bring that one up. And then there's a really different kind of anxiety, which is what I call true anxiety. And that's like our purposeful anxiety. And that's where there's a call to action, something from deep within us that is saying, hey, something is not right in the world around us, in our relationship, in our work, in our community. And we're not going to feel at ease until we start taking steps to rectify that situation. And so that's not something we could medicate away. It's not something that we can fix by going gluten free. It's really there as our compass, our true north. And that's a kind of anxiety to really slow down and listen to.
0: I love that, uh, that whole issue of hangry. Everyone knows what hangry is. Um, but mm-hmm. anxiety, that was a new one on I me. Mean, I like that, um, <laughs> a lot, you know, I'm just sort of like, ah, oh, I'm hungry. I'm anxious. I'm everything. All right. Where there's a false anxiety, there's a true anxiety. So what does that mean? How do you define true anxiety?
1: Yeah, I really think of true anxiety as purposeful anxiety. It's not a state of physical imbalance. It's not something we want to medicate away. It's something that is really just an inner truth, that it's our bodies saying it's a call to action. It's pointing us to look at what is not right in the world around us, maybe in our relationship or in our career or in our community, but something is out of balance and it's asking us to take steps accordingly. And we don't necessarily have to entirely fix the problem for our anxiety to abate, but we need to at least slow down, heed the call from our true anxiety and start to course correct, take some steps accordingly. And once we have that in motion, then it really lessens our anxiety and that anxiety, that true anxiety can even transmute into a feeling of purpose.
0: So when someone is beginning their meditation journey, many times people turn away from meditation because it actually conjures up feelings and what people love to call anxieties start happening. And you start thinking about things that make you anxious. And so many people find that meditation then is is almost a, uh, an experience that is negative because it puts you in a place where you feel very connected to this anxiety. What would you tell someone who was trying to be dutiful, they were told to self-reflect and meditate, but when they do, all these feelings come up?
1: Mm, okay, mm, this is a deep one. I think that part of what we're up against here is our kind of climate controlled culture, that everything is 71 degrees Fahrenheit and never a degree hotter or colder. And we have instant gratification around every corner a click of a keystroke on a computer. We get whatever we want. And it is pretty difficult these days to sit in discomfort. And I think that there's also a misconception we bring into meditation, which is You know, it's all peace and love, man, and all good vibes. And this world that we live in is in no way, shape, or form all good. And I really think of meditation as access to the unadulterated truth. And so when we sit in truth, in what is exactly as it is, I think it gives us access to a feeling of peace and awe and gratitude, but it also gives us access to the ways that things are not right. And we want to be available for all of it. I think that we also spend our lives running around like a chicken with our head cut off, and we never slow down and allow ourselves to feel our emotions, allow our unconscious to bubble up unresolved trauma, thoughts that are still unsettled. So meditation, if we finally then at some point take on a meditation practice, those first several sessions, it's like your unconscious is like, by Jove, the organism is finally still and quiet. Let's chime in with all of the anxious thoughts that we haven't gotten any airtime for all these years. And so that's, it sees it almost as this opportunity. It's not unlike the way we go through our whole day and then the minute our head hits the pillow, it's like, boom, now we're racing in our mind with all the things we're worried about. If that's the first opportunity we give ourselves in a day to process what we're going through and to feel our feelings, then we're gonna associate meditation with a lot of big emotions, a lot of big feelings. Um, One solution is just to make sure that little by little throughout our lives, we're feeling our feelings, we're moving through things we're processing and talking out loud about what feels uneasy in our lives but also it's okay to ride some of those waves in meditation and to not show up with the expectation that it's all peace and love but to be okay with the fact that maybe what comes up at first is heavy
0: I think that that whole um, assumption that it's all peace and love and you know tranquility and uh, and all the rest of it is is pretty crazy because You know, what goes on in our heads um, is an entire constellation of emotions and feelings. And, uh, you know, it's nice if you're having a great day and all the rest of it, but honestly, um, it's much more realistic uh, to really presume that you're going to be confronting some of these feelings. Now, that being said, what if you don't know what to do with that feeling? What if it does conjure up, you know, a trauma from the past or whatever else, and you feel yourself getting anxious? What do you do with that? Um, you know, because some people are really very uncomfortable um, uh, feeling this this trauma based experience.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important to have some container in place. If you're going to be kind of playing with what bubbles up in your unconscious, if you have a history of trauma and that container can look like a couple different things. But I, I mean, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a bit biased, but I think having. A therapist is a wonderful foundation for that. It's easier said than done. We live in a time of really difficulty, or difficulty with accessing good mental health care, affordable and available, but basically some kind of trauma-focused therapist is wonderful to have on hand. And I point out trauma-focused therapist because I think that there, there can be a pitfall that happens in therapy, which is that if you're in standard talk therapy and trauma's coming up, there is this, instinct or temptation that a lot of us have, which is to just talk about the trauma. And sometimes that can be helpful, but Often enough, that can be re-traumatizing. So what is better in those moments is these more body-based, nonverbal, very limbic system-focused approaches to trauma therapy that don't run the risk of being re-traumatizing. And examples of that are somatic experiencing therapy, something called EMDR, and then I also like something called DNRS. And if you need me to define those um, abbreviations, I'm happy to give it a try.
0: yeah yeah no question about that and we're going to talk about that in one second i just want to read something that you wrote in the book instead of asking how can i stop feeling so anxious we should be asking what is my anxiety telling me it's natural to resist this uncomfortable feeling culturally we've also been taught to view anxiety as a nuisance Something to suppress into submission. But when we do this, we miss out on critical guidance. What if we could learn to tolerate anxiety long enough to hear what change is necessary? Tell us what was going on in your mind when you wrote that.
1: Yeah, I think we really have this cultural relationship to our symptoms as um, this is indicative of a problem that I have. Like with anxiety, we have a story that we've told ourselves that we've been indoctrinated with, which is that anxiety is a chemical imbalance in the brain. It's your serotonin. And so we think, you know, let me address that, treat that, and not feel this uncomfortable, sometimes exquisitely uncomfortable, or sometimes just annoying symptom. And sometimes I, I'm right on board with let's get rid of this unnecessary symptom. When it comes to the false anxieties to you know, anxiety from a blood sugar crash, I'm all for fixing it and just eliminating it altogether. But that true anxiety that comes in with a message or a communication from the body, that's purposeful, and we don't actually want to suppress it. We want to explore it and be curious about it. And I think that it's a it's a mindset shift to understand that some symptoms are a communication from the body, and sometimes it is your body saying, "Hey, excuse me, you know, tap tap, um, can you slow down and take a look at this right now?" And the body can't speak in words. It can speak in sensations. It can speak in places of imbalance. And so I think that just culturally, we all could stand to slow down a little bit more and get curious and begin a line of inquiry rather than just trying to steamroll over what the body is saying.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Well, that makes sense to me. So let's talk about now ways to successfully discharge your body's pent up stress, and return to a relaxation response. So how do you do that?
1: Yeah, this pertains to the fact that Stress really behaves as a cycle. It's not unlike other cycles in the body. For example, the arousal cycle, something that has a beginning and a middle and an end. And stress itself has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But most of us are hanging out, kind of stuck in the beginning and the middle of stress, and we rarely bring it to resolution. When you look at animals in the animal kingdom, they have a system for bringing their stress response to resolution. If you watch a rabbit encounter a predator and have a freeze drop response when it comes to it shakes vigorously and that's how it completes the stress cycle and that shaking helps discharge the excess adrenaline that it just secreted in this life-or-death moment and it also communicates to the nervous system that the threat has passed it is now safe again And we as humans, we have no shortage of stress, but we don't have these shaking practices. We don't have a system for telling our body the threat has passed, now we're safe. Discharge the excess adrenaline. And so what I see with my patients is that many of them benefit from having some kind of daily practice for communicating just that to their bodies. And it really can look a lot of different ways. I have patients who do this in the form of vigorous exercise, some people dance, some people make art or sing or chant, some people just cuddle with their partner or with a dog, um, some people cry. My personal favorite, I mean crying, I am pretty, um, privy to, I am, I have a predilection for crying as a very therapeutic intervention, but I also love shaking. And this was a practice I learned probably about 10 years ago now when I studied integrative medicine at the University of Arizona. And they put on a track of shamanic drum music and had us close our eyes and kind of bend our knees softly and just shake and move however the body feels like moving for a few minutes. And now at this point, I do that for about a minute and a half every day. And it's quick, it's free, the music is on Spotify. It's super funky, but it really works. And that's what I do to discharge stress every day. And I've, I think at this point brought a lot of patients and folks from different speaking engagements along with me. So we have people all around the world now shaking to shamanic dramatic drum music, and it's a really therapeutic practice.
0: What about yoga? You're a yoga instructor.
1: Yeah, yoga has been such a lifeline in my life, and I I find that one of the ways that it's been most helpful is just that experience of holding a difficult pose and breathing and observing how my mind screams and squirms and wants to get out of the pose. You know, say an instructor is talking for a long time while you're holding warrior one or holding plank pose and you're thinking, I wish the instructor would stop talking. Did they lose sense of time? Like, I can't hold this any longer. I'm freaking out here. I need to come out of this pose. I need to take child pose. And at first, I would just come out of the pose and take child pose. And eventually, I started to just play around with that edge a little bit and think, well, what if that's a story I'm telling myself? What if I actually have some reserves of strength and endurance in this moment that I didn't realize I have? And to come back to the breath and keep the breath steady and use that as a lifeline to a state of more mental equanimity and then hold the pose and hold the pose without stress without resistance of reality. And I got to have that physical experience, that muscle memory of self-efficacy and equanimity in the face of challenge and using the breath as the plumb line. And that's what was really helped me in my life. And I come back to that gift that I got from yoga every single day.
0: Wow. Okay. So in addition uh, to this, you also speak about maintaining meaningful connections in our lives. And, you know, and once again, coming to terms with the fact that it's all not peace and love, (laughs) to your point before, how how do you do that? Because I think some people just, you know, they, they just get so exhausted with relationships, social connections, um, because it, it is messy. You've got good days, you've got not so great days. Um, and some people throw up their hands and say it's just not worth it.
1: Oh, I love the way you brought that up in relation to the, the, the not peace and love. So that's exactly right. We kind of know at this point that community is this single most critical factor in our longevity, in long-term cognitive health, in happiness and well-being and anxiety management. We need relationships, we need community. And what we don't give enough credit for is the fact that it's hard, because it's hard. Relationships are hard, they're they're messy, and we don't always get along, and it is not always peace and love. And I think that we, we do have that same climate control attitude of, you know, if this relationship goes above 71 degrees Fahrenheit, if it becomes difficult, if it starts to force me to have to look at parts of myself that I'm not particularly proud of, we want to walk out and slam the door behind us. And what we actually have to do instead is, at first, maybe slam the door a couple times, stomp, get it out, but then come back gently with the intention of, as Stephen Covey puts it so so well, to seek first to understand and then to be understood. We need to expand our capacity for compassion and understanding, and that is always the critical first step to repairing a relationship. And we just need to understand each other, each other's perspective, where we're coming from, everybody else's context. And helping other people feel seen and understood in that way also really helps the relationship feel good in every direction. But we need to fight and work hard to preserve relationships and preserve community in our lives. And I think it's so important to give ourselves grace and recognize it is not always easy, but it is worth fighting for.
0: So you you mentioned um, something that I found of of great interest. And that is, what's really at the heart of many people's true anxiety? So what is it?
1: I think about this every day, and when I have my finger on the pulse of it, I must say it, it shifts a little bit from time to time. And I think that on some days, I find myself really wanting to look at social media and thinking that there's this way that we're interacting with the world right now that's a little bit intangible, a little disconnected, and really focused on, you know, it's contentious over there. (laughs) There's a lot of uh, fighting and relational aggression and, you know, comparing ourselves to each other's highlight reels. And there's just there's a big part of relating to the world through social media that leaves us fried and anxious and not sleeping properly. But I think that there's also very valid true anxiety around mm, what feels like the, the planet barreling towards destruction. Um, and I think that, in a way, to me, it always just comes back to this duality between fear and love fear and trust and we we need to choose for ourselves where where we want to reside on that. It's really a matter of choosing our worldview. And we're in a world that already was pretty fear-based and scarcity-based, and we it's only gotten so much more through the pandemic. But I think that it's a worthy endeavor to really live the questions and try to seek out some relationship to trust, surrender, and celebrating this human experience, celebrating the feeling of love that we can have for each other, For this being alive in a body, and it's not easy, and the world is very imperfect, but I do think that we wanna just keep coming back to that and approaching trust, surrender, and love.
0: I love that, and what about death? I would imagine, you know, I'm a physician, you're a physician, Um, we've interacted with so many uh, people who are fear-driven and anxious because of death, the fear of death, which is at the heart of many people's true anxiety. How do you deal with
1: that? Yeah, the, the heart of anxiety in general is all, It's ultimately that worst-case scenario idea of either ourselves dying or losing the people that we love. And it is something I explore every day with patients. And I don't claim to fully have this answered or figured out. It's something that I live to explore. But I think that it is there are choices around how we want to live in relationship to death. And when we see it as cut and dry, material, random, that is, for many of us, a more anxious relationship to death. A feeling of well, we might as well be hyper vigilant and get full body MRI all the time and do everything we can to try to prevent something from killing us and That's a little bit of like anxiety catnip. It's a never-ending treadmill of things we can be doing to prevent death sometimes it even gets in the way of living and then there's a different relationship, a different attitude or stance toward death, which is easier said than done, <laughs> but it is basically one of trusting the unfolding of this and just committing to staying wide awake, eyes wide open and conscious to this human experience for as long as it lasts and for the full range of experiences and emotions and joys, ecstasies, challenges, and grief that we experience during that ride. And that's certainly what I've try to achieve in my life is more of an attitude of um, if this worst-case scenario happens in my life, I trust it, I surrender to it, and that even when things really hurt, when I'm grieving, when there's been immense loss, when things are challenging, when there's pain, that I don't want to numb that or deny it or resist it, but that I really want to show up for it and feel it fully.
0: Wow. Yeah, I I just find that to be oftentimes a very difficult conversation. I think a lot of people um, need guidance in in assembling some of those thoughts. Um, And it's just a lot of people just don't want to talk about it at all. Yet it is at the heart of so much anxiety. It's the unknown. Um, and there's just so many unknowns, I mean, layers of unknowns associated with death. You also talk about the appropriate use of psychedelics um, to decrease the fear of death. Uh, Tell us about that, because this is an emerging field, um, this use of psychedelics, uh, which are kind of having their (laughs) reemergence since they first showed up back in the 1960s, 70s, um, around that time. What's going on in that field right now and how could this potentially be helpful?
1: Yeah, it's it's an exciting time for it and a complicated time. But you're exactly right, we're having this reemergence, this new renaissance of a focus on psychedelics. And I think with respect to mental health, it's such an exciting potential paradigm shift. What I've noticed in my own practice is that patients who were stuck, who really were not able to find peace or freedom from suffering in their lives, for many of them, some relationship to psychedelics has been critical and transformative. And it's there aren't easy one-size-fits-all answers to this. Every single patient that I have, I'm constantly thinking, Is this like a a yes or a no? Is it a when or an if? And then um, within that I'm thinking is this going the above ground currently legal approach, which is um, working with a substance like ketamine in a ketamine clinic, or going more of a getting on a plane and going somewhere where something like psilocybin or ayahuasca is legal. And some of my patients are, you know, working with underground practitioners who I'm really indebted to for doing this work and risking their licenses um, because they so firmly believe in the healing Power of these medicines that they can't not offer it and so I've had um, a lot of patients experience true transformation with it and I find it really exciting I don't feel like in the past sometimes I'd feel stuck functional medicine gave me a little bit of a, a feeling of okay things that I couldn't address effectively with what I was trained to do with conventional psychiatry medications you know psychopharmaceuticals and cognitive behavioral therapy and other therapeutic modalities I thought okay functional medicine is a path forward where we can address problems at the physical root of imbalance and now what I really feel is that anybody who's even stuck there psychedelics are sometimes the the unstucking and when it comes to fear of death there's really interesting research around psilocybin ceremonies and having people with terminal cancer who were experiencing end-of-life anxiety um, that they were able to have a reckoning with that fear of death with the fact that life was coming to an end and to feel a lot more peace in relationship to that and to feel like this isn't the worst case scenario in quite the same way that they might have been feeling prior
0: what what would someone do if they wanted to try this out
1: there are a couple pathways um there's an incredible organization called maps which runs clinical trials. So it never hurts to apply to be a part of a clinical trial. There's currently trials uh, looking at the role of MDMA, or what's um, more colloquially referred to as ecstasy, for PTSD treatment. I believe there are some psilocybin trials as well. And then you can can just walk into a ketamine clinic and be evaluated. And generally, they're looking to treat patients with treatment-resistant depression. But that's a really nice option. Um, it is safe, you know, as long as somebody's exercising proper clinical judgment and making sure there are no contraindications, and it can be a really effective legal pathway to working with psychedelics.
0: Very nice, very nice. I just think that people should keep their eyes and ears open um, when it comes to uh you know, new therapeutic approaches like this and just scope it out Um, and stick with um, uh, credible practitioners like yourself who can help explain a little bit about what this is and potential opportunities for it to be a benefit to you as well. So I think that that's very cool. All right, so as we wrap this up, this has been really neat. This is a tour de force basically through anxiety, all things anxiety. What are your uh, parting words of wisdom as we wind this up? To the women out here in the Her Podcast land, the mass majority of which have had all kinds of interesting experiences with anxiety, What would you like to leave them as a little gift of wisdom?
1: Hmm. Okay. So if you can do really only, let's say, three changes right now. The first would actually be to get your phone out of the bedroom, set up your charger somewhere else in your home, and make sure that the phone doesn't come into the bed with you. And that's impactful with your anxiety in a number of different ways. But one of it is just that you're not going to be up late night, doom scrolling. And the way that social media apps are designed without a natural stopping point means we never feel like, oh, I got to the end of TikTok. Let me put my phone away and go to sleep at this wholesome hour. And so you're going to go to sleep a little bit earlier, you're not going to have that blue spectrum light disrupting your circadian rhythm, and then it's not going to seed your unconscious with all of the uneasy thoughts that come through the phone. So phone out of the bedroom, number one. Uh, Number two is always choose people, and that's often hard work, as we discussed, but you want to choose community and connection over all of the competing priorities like comfort and ease and keeping things simple. And of course, I'm here to acknowledge, you know, have your introverted regroup times. You don't always need to be around people all of the time, but you generally want to err on the side of structuring your life to promote more connection and community if possible. And I I I love
0: that. I love that whole issue. Again, you know, um, social connections, how priceless they are, and how incredibly beneficial they are to our health and well-being.
1: Yeah, and I think a final thing, and we there's a whole inventory of ways you can approach false anxiety, everything from keeping your blood sugar stable to reducing caffeine, healing the gut, making sure you're eating nutrient-dense foods, avoiding inflammatory foods, avoiding alcohol, the list goes on and on. But if you can prioritize only one thing, I think it's sleep. And just to start moving towards an earlier bedtime cold dark quiet bedroom um, and and really structuring your life around setting yourself up for a good night's sleep fantastic
0: well done this has just been a fabulous episode why because it's so relevant to everything we need as women we've been talking with dr ellen vora she is the author of the anatomy of anxiety understanding and overcoming the body's fear response. So important. Dr. Vora, thank you so much for being on the HER podcast.
1: Dr. Pam, thank you so much. It's an honor and I really appreciate what you're doing here.
0: Fantastic. And everyone run on over to uh, Dr. Vora's uh, website, which is Ellen, E-L-L-E-N, Vora, V-O-R-A dot com to learn more. Grab the book as well. And now everyone out there, take a minute to hit iTunes, rate and review the show because I'm waiting to hear from you. I'm Dr. Pam Peek, host of the Herb Podcast. Follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek or Twitter and Instagram at Pam Peake MD. And remember to catch every episode of the Her Podcast on iTunes or Radio MD. Thanks for listening today and please stay safe and stay well.